Welcome to Activation Energy by the Chemical Angel Network. I'm your host, Selma Dulovich. In this episode, I speak with DC Palter about clean tech investing. DC is an angel investor who built and exited two companies as an entrepreneur. He is a member of the Chemical Angel Network as well as Tech Coast Angels. He is a mechanical engineer by training and a marketing specialist by trade with an MBA from UCLA. DC is passionate about startups as well as literature. He writes a popular blog called Pitching Angels, and he recently published a mystery novel titled To Kill a Unicorn. Hi, DC. Welcome back to Activation Energy. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you, Selma. It's great to see you again. Always love talking to you. Let's jump straight in. Uh, so you're a clean tech investor. Um, tell me about when and why you started investing in clean tech. Okay, well, I'd love to talk about that. So my passion in clean tech actually goes back to like high school when it was in the middle of the uh, of the oil crisis and I became I went to college specifically to study energy engineering and see if I could solve that. In those days the problem was we didn't have enough um oil. We didn't have enough uh, fossil fuels, less so than, than the climate aspects of it. But what we did have, there was also an issue with um, with pollution. So that was what I studied in school. Um, unfortunately, when uh, when I graduated, there weren't any jobs in that. Everyone, you know, other than drilling for oil, there, there weren't any jobs. So I uh, ended up in defense industry. And instead of saving the world, I was in a job where my job, where I was supposed to kill people. So didn't enjoy that very much. Uh, left, went to Japan and found a job there working for a steel company where I got to work on research in reducing pollution. Those days that meant knocks and socks and, and other um, uh, particulate matter and things like that from the steel production. But that was a lot more exciting to me, a lot more interesting to me to work on. Did that for a number of years and then said, okay, well, I've done the engineering thing. Um, I, I went... I want to be on the business side. Um, I'm probably not an, I, I think like an engineer, but I don't want to be doing engineering all day. So went back, got my MBA, um, wanted to get into clean tech uh, again and had the opportunity to work uh, at General Motors on the EV1, the first uh, electric vehicle. My job was to introduce that to the, uh, to the Japanese car companies. And ironically, GM killed the EV1. Toyota continued using the charging system from the EV1 and you could drive around the US and you could see uh, the GM chargers that Toyota was using. And that was, that was a great project, but then you know GM killed that too. So um, ended up working at startups and did that for a long time, had nothing to do with clean tech. It was IT, it was my career, made money. Um, and the successful, the starts were successful, but, um, it was just about making successful businesses. And I really wanted to get, as, as we went into the, you know, worse and worse climate, uh, disaster pending, I really wanted to get back into that. So, um, ended up selling the business and looking for, um, ways that I could help out, uh, other startups. Now that I had the startup expertise to, uh, to help young entrepreneurs to be able to build startups, particularly in, in climate tech. And so this was started in 2010 um, while, I was, while I was still running uh, my own startup, um, but I became an angel investor uh, and I would invest in anything that was interesting, but you know, the excitement was around um, things in the climate, in climate tech space. Um, and then starting in, I guess around 2015, um, I ended up devoting myself pretty much full-time to being a, angel investor and a startup mentor. So I mentored a lot of uh, startup programs 
but the ones that are dedicated towards uh, climate tech uh, or the ones that are general, like a UCLA or USC uh, incubators, um, I will glom onto the the climate tech startups and say, uh, I'm your mentor for this program because this is the, the area I have interest and expertise in. So, um, and that has given me a chance to see a lot of great startups and a lot of opportunities and be able to invest in them at the same time, uh, kind of helping young entrepreneurs get started. I got involved in the startup world around 2014, 2015 as well. And uh, it's been interesting to watch clean tech investing grow. Yes, yes. especially climate tech went from a nothing to probably next to life sciences, the, 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 the biggest space right now for investment. Yeah, and it seems it'll keep growing, which is really great. Um, tell me about what you're seeing in clean tech these days and what are you investing in? So it's a pretty wide range of different things that people are working on around the whole area of sustainability. Some of it's software, uh, but there's also a lot of hard tech, which I, I find a lot more interesting. Uh, some of this we see at uh, Chemical Angels, uh, Chemical Angel Network with companies coming in and pitching to us. We see a lot of things, uh, especially recently in advanced batteries, like every day there's a better anode, a better cathode, a better electrolyte, solid state batteries, uh, flow batteries, safer batteries, faster charging batteries. This is wonderful. I mean, we, we really depend right now on lithium ion batteries, but if we can make them cheaper, better, faster, then that changes the whole equation. And we need to do that. Everybody needs, knows we need to do that. So seeing all of these startups really working on, they're not revolutions, they're, they're iterative changes, but they can make a real difference. If you can, you can improve 20% per year, you know, and you've made a huge, huge difference. So I really love to see uh, those sorts of things. Uh, but then we're also seeing just all over the board and some of the things I've invested in, it's easier for me to talk about them specifically as good examples. So one of them, uh, in fact, two of them are in the water purification space. And we see a lot of water purification startups with, you know, how do we get pure water? How do we get clean water out of salt water? How do we, uh, how do we reduce the pollution out of effluent from, uh, from factories? How do we take brackish water and turn it into drinking water? Um, and so a lot of it are things like membranes or uh, better membranes. Some of it is better systems like um so one of the companies i invest in is uh is is called noria water and um really they just make the the water purification systems more efficient by uh using ai and cameras to look at the the um the the systems and see when the fouling hap foul, fouling happens so that they know when uh when the systems need to be clean instead of just doing them you know according to uh, according to schedule another one that I, I worked on specifically is is a company called Comfort IQ that if you work in a big office there's one thermostat for uh, like five or six offices which means we can't do heating and air conditioning the same way as we do lights. Right? So if you're in an office and you walk out of your room 15 minutes later, the light, you know, automatically the motion sensor says nobody here, lights goes off, you save energy, lights are off for the evening. Doesn't work in an office because we have for the air conditioning systems, because we have five or six offices that everybody's there. There's one thermostat for all of them. And so we can't control the temperature. We can't control occupancy. So this company came up with a really, it's not rocket science. It's a great idea of having a, a motion sensor and a temperature sensor in every office and a damper, electrically controlled uh, motorized damper in each of the vents. 
And so now we can control the temperature so that you can get the temperature you want in each office. And if nobody's there, turn off the air conditioning. Why are we wasting air conditioning, cooling off offices or heating offices when nobody's there? So things like that can save something like 50% of the energy in, uh, in a building, uh, especially nowadays with COVID where there's a lot more vacancies. But even before that, I mean, people were out to lunch, people were gone for the day, people were at meetings. You could be in a meeting for two hours and meanwhile, your office is being chilled uh, in the middle of the summer. It's silly. So things like that make a, make a huge difference. Uh, another one I'm very excited about that I was a mentor for and then became an investor, a company called uh, herd company. And what they do is they take agricultural waste and they uh, they pull out the cellulose and they use that to make a polyester viscose-like material so that you can use agricultural waste to make clothing fibers instead of, uh, instead of using plastic or instead of cutting down trees for it. And, uh, or, or, you know, like cotton, cotton's wonderful, but it takes a lot of water. So why not use agricultural waste? So that's a great example of how we can take waste. We can turn it into useful materials to replace existing products that either come from oil or require lots of water or require damaging the environment. And we see a lot of those sorts of things in can. We now see pretty much anything that was made with petroleum before. We're now seeing somebody with the chemicals and materials background saying, let's figure out a way to do this with waste. Let's figure out a way to do this more efficiently. And these are wonderful. And we're just seeing a lot lot of those sorts of startups come along uh, and, I, and I think they're all they're all great for the environment. Uh, we also have one that you had on the show earlier called Harvest Thermal. Pretty basic idea. Uh, Takes some work to actually build it of uh, we want to get rid of the gas hookups in the home, but we're using the gas hookup for heating and, and for for hot water. So we want to replace the heating with a heat pump, but the heat pump's going to run when you're cold, right? And that may not be a good time to run the heat pump and that because that's electricity. So why don't we run the heat pump at the time when electricity is cheap, when we have too much of it, which is either in the middle of the day when the sun is shining, if we have solar energy, or in the middle of the night when the wind is blowing and no one's using electricity. Anyway, let's run the heat pump then and store up the energy in a water tank. And then we have hot water for our baths and our cooking and things like that. So uh, their system helps replace the, the gas hookup again, making it much, uh, much more efficient and, of course, lower uh, carbon dioxide emissions. So uh, I think that's a good sample of the sort of things that we see at, at Chemical Angels, the sort of companies that, that I see as, as a uh, mentor and the companies that I get really excited about and want to invest in. Can you talk a bit about how you evaluate startups? Um, the, the reason I'm asking is because I noticed that angel investors are unexpectedly risk averse. Right. So kind of everyone has this idea of an angel is just, you know, a rich guy or a bunch of rich guys who are like, oh, that's a great idea. Let me give you some money to go and build it. And that's really not how it works. We are, for the most part, business people. Uh, we are the, the angel investor, the investor part is pretty key to it, right? So when people are pitching to us, we are looking at it as an investment. We want to support investments that are good for the environment. We want to support investments that are in our space and things we know about, but it is still an investment. And so we have to evaluate it in terms of what is, how are we going to make money from our investment? So the companies that come to us uh, or the founders that come to us and say, I've got a great idea, I need money to build it. 
tend to run into problems. They, they expect angels to be like, great idea, here's the money. But we're like, okay, but where's the customers? Have you talked to the customers? Have you built the product yet? What's the go-to-market strategy? How big are you going to be in five years? And then, yes, we've given you money. So when, how are we going to get our money back uh, with a return on it? And those are questions that often aren't addressed. And then we look at it and say, yeah, sorry, you're too early. Come back to us when you figured all those things out. And that means the, the startups need to be a little bit further along. They need to be past the idea stage and they need to be into the, yeah, we have something, we've proven it works. We have talked to customers. They are excited about it. Some of them are doing trials. Some of them have given us MOUs to say that they're going to buy it. And we know how to get from here to five years from now being, you know, $100 million in business. And then once we get there, we're pretty sure that a company like, you know, like a 3M or a DuPont or BASF is going to be like, yeah, we need this. So we're going to, we're going to buy, uh, we're going to buy the business. And at that point, the investors get a return. So I kind of think of it as three stages, right? And that's when you do a pitch, most people are pitching their, their product or their invention. And that really isn't what we're looking for. So in the end, the pitch is a story about how an investor is going to make money. And how is an investor going to make money? They're going to make money because you have a great business that somebody's going to acquire. And why do you have a great business somebody's going to acquire? Because you have a great product that um, is going to scale to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. So we don't want to hear so much about your great product, except we, you know, that's the starting point. So it's how do you get from having a great product to having a great business to having a great investment? And that's what a pitch needs to be. And anyone just comes in and says, I've invented something and this is a great idea. We tend to be like, yeah, come back to us when you figured out the rest of the pieces. Would you say that clean tech investors are more risk averse than software investors? Um, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, they are almost completely different ecosystems with kind of different mentalities to them. So the software people really are investor investors, right? And so they are really looking at it as wonderful. You've invented something. People need it. We know how much money we can give you and you can you can build it. And then Google's going to buy you for a billion dollars. Wonderful. People in clean tech, it's a big mixture. And there are quite a few people that really don't understand investments. They haven't been doing angel investing for long, but they want to help startups and they want to help the environment. And so they're willing to invest maybe a small amount, but you can put together a whole bunch of those people and actually have, have a whole round of investment. And they, they really are kind of this idea of what an angel investor is of just, Oh, somebody, I'll give them a pitch and they're going to give me uh, they're going to sign a form and, and wire me some money. And I see quite a bit of that. That is not can. Can you go to Chemical Angels and it will be you will be going through a process, which is give us the pitch, going through the diligence. We will analyze the market. We will analyze the deal terms. We will definitely analyze the technology and then we will decide if we think this is a good investment and then we will invest and then kind of upstream, and these are the people that you probably know better, Selma, uh, are the actual VCs. And there are so many VCs that have just collected hundreds of millions of dollars to billions of dollars to invest in clean tech. And that's that's their mission is invest in clean tech. And they have people who are experts in clean tech. There are funds that specialize in nothing but batteries. There are funds that specialize in, in water technology. And they have the expertise and, and they're essentially getting paid by their investors to find startups to invest in, uh, and they will have a big pool of money to work with, but they will be very professional because they need to provide a return to their investors. It's a job. 
they are investment professionals. So they're going to look at it a bit differently than kind of an angel group where we're investing our own money. So we can make our own decisions, what we want to invest in, but it is our own money too. So there is some conservatism of this is coming out of my pocket. This is the difference between taking a cruise with my wife to Italy versus uh, making an investment in in this startup. You know, $10,000 is, is real money, right? $100,000 is really real money, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always loath to write that check uh, until I'm really careful that I uh, really believe that this is something that is a good investment. And then there's, you know, there are, again, there's people who just say, uh, yeah, this sounds great and the world needs it. And I will give you a small investment. It's almost like a donation, right? Because they want to see, they want to help companies succeed. Now I'm wondering if you see a difference in mentality and approach uh, between entrepreneurs with technical backgrounds say, fresh out of PhD founders and non-technical entrepreneurs? There's a huge difference between the software startups, which you can do in your garage. You can do it nights and weekends. You can hire some friends. You can hire you know, some, some people in other countries and, and just get something done for a relatively small amount of money. Hard tech is hard, right? You want to build a better battery, you need labs. <laughs> You need people and they all actually need to be physical space. So you, you can't just have an idea of, oh, I think this material would work better than this material. So why don't I try and build it? It's like, okay, well, that's a two-year project. We're going to need some funding, whether that comes from a university uh, PhD program or whether that's a government SBIR grant. And you're not going to come up with that. It's software. I can come up with software ideas. I've come up with software ideas. Um, and then you can just... I can do it myself or I can hire somebody to do it. If I come up with an idea for a better battery, I really need people who you know, are PhDs in chemistry and materials who have labs to, to build them. So you get a very different mentality. You get a different kind of business. And that makes it harder for, to, to find investment because the process takes longer. Uh, it costs more money. In software, you can build a decent prototype for $100,000 and you can get to market for a million dollars. You cannot do that with serious hard tech. Uh, and so climate tech, uh, the, the hard tech climate tech tends to be a lot more similar to like medical investment, where it is people with who are doctors who are, who are people with PhDs in chemistry and pharmacology and things like that, who understand the process of taking a, finding a new drug, testing a new drug, getting a new drug through FDA approval and out to market. It takes some very specific expertise and you need a team for that. I do like to see, kind of going back to your question, I'm always a bit wary, and this is kind of my personal bias as a business person rather than a PhD. I see too many startups that are, the team is all uh, science PhDs. And I think that's great. But my feeling is they have too much of a focus on the product and the and how wonderful their invention is. And I really like to see teams that are, yes, they have the science chops with the PhDs and the material scientists, uh, and they actually know how to build something, but they also have the business guy or the businesswoman uh, who understands the market, who knows how to take a invention and turn that into a product and get that in front of customers. And, and that's you're not going to get that out of a, uh, an accelerator, you really need, just as you need a PhD to understand how to build new chemicals and, and scale them up, you need 10 years of experience building companies to know what it takes to take this idea and scale up the business. And so I really like to see teams that have both you know, real science chops, 
but also real business people who who can take the idea forward. Yeah, I'll be the first to admit uh, that when I first got the entrepreneurial bug, I had this mentality of, well, how hard can business development be? You just go to meetings and talk to people, right? Right. Yeah, here's, here's I got a product. I'll show it to, you know, it's a new battery. I'll go to Panasonic. There's like two other battery companies, SK, whatever. And uh, and then they'll license it and uh, it will all be rich. Wonderful. I just need some money. <laughs> I remember how naive I was. Um and arrogant, in all honesty, I had no idea how hard it is to commercialize an invention, how difficult it is to turn a technology into a product, and then a product into a sustainable business. I wouldn't call it arrogance. I just call it lack of experience. I mean, it's obvious if you don't understand materials, you're not going to create a new battery, right? You need you need to have studied it. You need to be an expert in it. And that's just obvious to everyone. But it's not obvious that building a business is a uh, skill that takes experience because you think, I've got a product. It's a build it and they will come kind of thinking, right? If I have a better product, I'll just show it to customers and you know I can hire a sales guy to handle the day-to-day -day stuff. But that's really all it takes. And that's, that's really not the case. You, it takes a lot of expertise, as you said, to know how to take an invention, build it into a product and take a product and build it into a successful business. And it's more than just sales. It's it's everything. It's marketing. It's strategy. It's operations. It's supply chain. In fact, it's even harder for hard tech companies than it is for software, because software you don't have to deal with factories. You don't have to deal with supply chain. You don't have to deal with operations other than like customer support. And you got all of that in a hard tech startup. So as you say, to commercialize an invention, one needs a lot of resources. Uh expertise and capital. Can you talk a little bit about the support system that you see is available to clean tech entrepreneurs? So that's a great question. And, and really the ecosystem is, uh, or ecosystem is expanding rapidly. And I think that's wonderful. Uh, really help more of these young startups in, in climate tech get, uh, get off the ground. So a few that, or a couple that I'm personally part of as, as a mentor, one is Clean Tech Open. It's been around for quite a while. It's a nationwide program, gets uh, probably the order of a few hundred startups and is a accelerator program to really help uh, companies figure out, you know, the business model canvas and then how to pitch to investors and then um, ends with a uh, pitch competition that's a nationwide competition uh, and then gets in front of investors. That's, that's a great program. There's a small cost associated with it to, to cover the, the cost of the program, but really, really worth it. Uh, the uh, second one that, that I'm also a mentor at is called Venture Wells Spire. That's a small program where they select, um, I think it's like eight to 10 startups, and it's an intensive program uh, where there's meetings every every week, and then a, uh, a get-together in Houston for, for a number of days where we work through various sorts of issues. It's more than just pitching, it's it's really more about how to build the business and how to build the board and how to deal with investors. So it's kind of the next stage beyond your typical accelerator that really just goes into, okay, how do I how do I start a business and how do I how do I find money? Then there's also one that I'm a little less familiar with, but also very well 
known of Third Derivative in, I believe it's in the Denver area. That's a, it's a great program for climate tech startups they specialize in. There's a new program in uh, in London, or actually, I guess, closer to, uh, to Cambridge University called Carbon 13. And it's a bit unique where most programs, you can you you start with your team and your and your product, and then you go there to kind of build out the business and, and look for funding. Uh, they start from the beginning and say, what we need are more startups. So let's get entrepreneurs together to to build one. So it's really it's it's a program where the first stage is just matchmaking. You meet everybody you find and they bring in people who are both uh, the business side and the technical side and they get people together and they kind of figure out what uh, who works together well and what problems they want to work on, try to come up with the solutions. A little different from the normal things we see at CAN, which tend to be university research that's been spun out into uh, into a technology company. This is starting from the other way of, let's get some people together, figure out what problems they want to attack, and then figure out how to build the solution around them. And it kind of, it has three stages of the matchmaking and then and then working together to build a product idea and then and then kind of building out the product towards, uh, towards investment. So uh, that's a very interesting program as well, that I think, isn't uh, isn't all that well known. Let's switch gears now, uh, because I'm eager to hear about your uh, book, uh, To Kill a Unicorn, uh, a very intriguing title. What is the premise of that book? Okay, so it is a mystery novel about Silicon Valley, roughly based on Theranos, except instead of making an impossible blood testing device, they've invented or claimed to have invented teleportation. And again, university research out of a PhD program at Stanford University uh, in their in their physics department. And they've put together a startup, got lots of investment. They claim to have a product ready to go. And then the chief scientist has uh, has disappeared. So the question is, is the company a fraud or have they actually developed something, but there's something that they're hiding? So uh, scientist is missing his uh, his friend is a hacker who works at a company very similar to Google, and he's going to uh, try to figure out what has happened to his friend, which means end up figuring out what's going on inside this mysterious, crazy startup that's already gotten a billion dollars in investment. And you also have a blog uh can you tell us more about that? So I actually have two, <laughs> just to confuse people. Yes. So, yes, the yeah, the the one that's I, I think the what you're referring to is called Pitching Angels. So https uh, pitchingangels.com and is a collection of articles. I guess there's about a hundred up there at this point of kind of things that we're talking about here. It's the stuff that as a startup. Uh, mentor are the questions that I hear all the time and people asking things like, what needs to be in the pitch deck? What are the slides in the pitch deck? An investor is telling me they're too early. What does that mean? I think probably the most relevant one here to to our discussion is I wrote one a, a few months ago called Why is Hard Tech So Effing Hard? And that's kind of the things that we're talking about here. So um, I try to put those up on a weekly or bi-weekly basis with new articles uh, that are geared towards uh, startup founders, and in particular, um, ones that may be coming from the, the hard tech space, uh, as well as uh, other angel investors and in, in VC in, in this space. Um, they're short. Each one is roughly, uh, you're supposed to be able to read it in less than, less than five minutes. 
Admittedly, I haven't read your blog in a while, um, about three or four months, actually, since I joined Propelix, which keeps me really busy. Yeah, you've been, you've been awful busy. Um, is there a connection between the blog and the book? Um, I know some authors rake up a lot of blog posts and package them into a book later. No, they're, they're completely separate. Um, I wrote the book partially because uh, I've always wanted to be a, a novelist all my life, as well as wanting to be in clean tech. That's kind of been my two things. And Silicon Valley is just such an interesting, crazy, exciting place that nobody gets. Nobody understands it um, other than people in the industry itself. So I wanted to write a, a novel that was for people in the tech industry uh, and written with some authority to it. So um, it, it came out as a mystery novel, but think of it as a fictionalized version of uh, the whole Theranos mess. The stories of troubled companies that the media picks up on, uh, Theranos, WeWork, FTX, are so sensational that they feel like they could only happen in movies. And, you know, they have been turned into movies and books. Um, and I can't help but wonder what percentage of startups actually resemble such troubled companies. Yeah, that's 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 a really good question. There's a lot more than you hear about. WeWork is probably not the greatest example because that wasn't a fraud. That was just they were just ridiculously overvalued. Theranos was a fraud. FTX, um, I probably can't call it a fraud because I haven't been convicted in court yet. But there's a lot of things that are kind of sketchy about the things that they've they've said. It does look like a pyramid scheme. Can't say it is for sure. Uh, Madoff, our famous pyramid scheme person, was actually one of my customers <laughs> at a company. But they, I got paid, so it was fine. Uh, that part was legit. I didn't invest in them. But Silicon Valley has a well-deserved reputation for fake it till you make it. It's kind of an attitude. I mean, Theranos is a great example. You can't build the product until, especially hard tech, until you have money. And until you build the product, nobody wants to give you money. So there's always this, there is a maybe inclination towards spinning things and saying that um, you're further along than, than you are, or not really telling the entire truth to, uh, to investors and customers. Um, Theranos went all the way to the other extreme of just outright lying. It probably didn't start that way. It probably started as, you know, we are trying to build this thing and we're really trying to build it. But when it didn't work, instead of saying, yeah, sorry, it didn't work, they hid the, the you know, the, the real stuff in the in the back and they had this fake thing in the front and that was just complete out fraud. But we see quite a few companies that have overstated how far along they are or they've They've said that they are that they have customers signed up when they're still like just talking to customers, or they've said they've built a product when it's still a very early stage prototype that isn't really a product. And so it's a very thin line between what is the real status versus what are they presenting to the to uh, to the outside world. I've invested in somewhere close to 100 companies between my personal investments and then the funds that I've invested in each doing about 10 investments each. So let's let's call it 100. I think of those 100, I know of two that turned out to be extremely misleading in what they had said. And we found out when the company went bust and it's like, oh, you said you had 10 
10 customers signed up and it turns out there were none. Uh, so, and, you know, we'd sue them except that there's no money left to recover. So kind of what's, what's the point. So two out of a hundred have been to the point of they lied. I mean, they out and out lied on their applications to us and what they told us. Um, I know of others that are that weren't lies, but they fudged the truth. So let's say 2% are complete frauds and you never find out about them, right? Because, you know, they got a $2 million worth of investment from a handful of angel investors and then they went bankrupt. And it's like, yeah, okay, bad investment. Sorry, you know, you're going to call the police because they lied on a document that where they where they swore that everything they said was the truth. No, it's just not going to happen. And you can't sue them because there's no money to recover. So you never hear about it. It's not newsworthy. The only, I mean, but it's exactly the same as Theranos, except that they got a billion dollars in investment and, and they had been in the news already. And Wall Street Journal was following them and uh, Walgreens and Rite Aid had invested in them. So when it turns out that that, device that they said was their wonderful invention was just a Potomkin village of, you know, it was a plastic thing. It didn't do anything. And they had like real test equipment in the back. That makes news, right? That makes the Wall Street Journal. That becomes a TV, you know, a, a movie. That becomes a book. But there's a lot of them like that that you just don't hear about. And they don't get as far along either because they run out of money very quickly. So they crash and burn rather quickly. So that's a long way of saying I think probably... If I had to make an estimate from my experience, I'd say 2% are out and out frauds and probably 5 to 10% have in some way overstated what, what the truth is about their, their situation. But, you know, they could argue that it's hard to say. So if they say we have a customer and they don't actually have the customer contract in hand, that's a lie. But what if the customer has, you know, verbally agreed to to sign it up? Is that lying? They have a customer, they don't have a contract. Eh. Okay. But if they've just started, they've reached out to the customer and the customer said, okay, I'm willing to have a phone call with you. That's a lie, right? That is not a customer. And so we see a lot of those where they're just like, yeah, we've got five customers signed up. And it turns out, well, no, they had five people who expressed some early level of interest. Yeah, especially when the customer is a conglomerate that takes forever to uh, make a decision, I I know. Um, DC, I now want to ask you about hype. So as I mentioned, I've been in the startup ecosystem since 2014. And throughout these years, I noticed that there are some very charismatic entrepreneurs who have a knack for storytelling. Now, When I entered this world, I entered it straight from academia and the scientific community where storytelling is really important, but it's always backed by numbers. Um, Like you cannot publish your research story in a journal without supporting your claims with data, right? Um, But in early stage ventures, there are hardly any numbers, so one has to rely on narrative. Um, I remember initially I used to be very measured and it took me a while to learn how to pitch enthusiastically and with faith in what I was trying to advance, despite the fact that I didn't have all the data. Uh, And then the more time I spent in the company of founders who, you know, some of them who became really good friends, the more I found myself being swept up into this hype. You know, one could say that I was very impressionable and my thoughts and my behavior were being shaped by the environment that I was in. Um, 
I actually also noticed this on LinkedIn. People will join a startup and all of a sudden they become these evangelists for the company and its mission. Uh, and fast forward, you know, to today, I'm now working for a broker dealer. And here, uh, everything is all about risk and risk mitigation. You know, entrepreneurs come pitch to me and the first thing that I want to know is how financially stable their startups are. Um, like, it's great that you're chasing after a $10 billion opportunity, and it's great that there's a high probability that you'll succeed. But if you don't have six months of runway, I'm morally and legally obligated to turn you away. So all of this to say that, um, you know, th this makes me wonder, when you hear about these flawed entrepreneurs, how much of it is it their personal character and how much is it the culture and the environment in which they're operating? In other words, who is to blame? Well, it's both. So, and part of the issue is that there's no one answer, right? What you put on your website, you want to get ex people excited about it. So you're not going to say, we're 80% of the way towards having a finished product and it's going to take us five years to get there. And, you know, please follow us on the journey. Your website is like, we've invented the greatest thing ever. And you need to build that hype out there. When you're talking to investors at the beginning, you have to get them excited. So you have to say, we have customers that are excited about this. We have invented something great. And then when you get into the diligence level, you can start diving into the details and say, yeah, here's exactly where we're at. And then when you're talking to customers, that's kind of a different thing. Again, I come from a marketing point of view and my rule is you don't lie, but you do put your best face forward. I've seen people lie or I've seen people find ways of uh, finding a different face to put forward. <laughs> because theirs was not exciting. So each of those requires a different, uh, a little bit of a different mentality and what is considered correct and what considered appropriate is a little bit different. And if you're just a founder, you're straight out of school, you don't may not understand those nuances. So, and, and we've kind of seen a lot of times the other extreme, right? We'll get pitches from people straight out of academia and they will give us something that looks like a scientific paper. It's like, here's, here's what we have proven. Here's what we have yet to prove. Here's our process. Like, come on, you, you, you have to get us excited before we get into that. So it is a thin line and it does take kind of different modes of thinking depending on who your audience is and what's acceptable and what's expected. And if you, if you just try to be as upfront as possible, that's great, but you also have to put on your marketing hat and get people excited. But I think there is a thin line, but that line is, are you lying? Are you telling somebody, are you getting somebody excited? Wonderful. Are you putting your best face forward? Wonderful. Are you actually lying about what you're doing or what status you're at? And it, when somebody asks you a question, like, has the customer signed that contract? It's tempting. It's very tempting to just say yes, because you know, if you say no, they're going to be like, come back when they have. So you really want to say yes. You really want to find some way to justify saying yes. It's like, well, they haven't actually signed it, but they're going to. They promise they're going to. So I'm just going to say yes. That's simple. And it is so tempting. But that is the line I think you can't cross. You cannot lie. And here's where it gets difficult, right? Sometimes you're not actively lying, but you are hiding information that you know the other person is coming to the wrong conclusion. And that is 
Some people think that's okay. To me, that is not. If if you know the other person that you're trying to get as an investor is coming to the wrong conclusion because of information that you've given them, I feel like they're going to be angry later. And that means it, you've thought of it transactionally instead of a relationship, right? Maybe that's the best way of thinking of it. When you are signing up investors, it's different from signing up even customers for hard tech, right? It is not just a single transaction. It is the beginning of a relationship. And it's not just about getting money right now. It is about working with the same people for the next five years. Same thing with customers. It's not like somebody, you know, just buying a, you know, shoes in the store. When you're working with a, when you're making new batteries and you're selling your new cathodes, your better cathodes to Panasonic, they're going to test them. They're going to spend five years testing them. Uh, if they like them, they're going to spend the next 20 years buying stuff from you. So it's not a single transaction. And if you lie to them in the beginning, if you mislead them in the beginning, you've ruined that. They're going to find out. It's going to come out. So the rule for me, and I'm not an ethics person, and there's whole classes in ethics that I haven't taken. But to me, the rule is if somebody would find out about it later and be angry about it, then you better tell them now because you're just hiding the bad news. It, it may seem in the short term that that gets you somewhere. And that's the temptation again. Well, once I have the money, then I can build the product and then I can fulfill, I can get to what I told them before they ever find out about it. But that's also like a gambler's mentality, right? Um, I lost money, but I'll put more money in and I'll get back to even. And then, you know, nobody will care about the fact that I took $10,000 out of the company account because I'm going to put $10,000 back in. It's the same thing. If somebody would, if somebody's going to be angry about it when they find out, then don't do it because it's a relationship, not a transaction. Okay, last question. What do you hope to accomplish with this book? So, unlike my blog, my blog has a specific purpose. My blog is to help starter, uh, help founders um, kind of understand what they need to know about pitching, about investing, about starting businesses, the same sort of advice I give them if I'm working on them one-on-one. -on -one. So it's a very specific purpose to kind of help people. Um, the book, to kill a unicorn, it does have a specific purpose, and that's to be entertaining, to have fun. I tell people, it's the most fun you will ever have reading about Silicon Valley. Sick of reading, you know, the lean startup? Good. Now you can read my mystery novel and see a book written from uh, about the world that you know and you, you enjoy. Uh, yes, it's about a fraud. I'm not trying to say all founders are, uh, are, are frauds. In fact, most of the 99 or 95% of them are not. Um, but it is to talk about one that I find particularly entertaining and hopefully other people will enjoy reading about hackers and founders and startups and crypto investors and everything else going on in Silicon Valley. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, DC, for coming on the show again. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Selma. It's great to talk with you again. Always love talking with you.